0: Welcome to the SBC podcast. I'm your host, Dan. It's so good to be with you again. Today, we're hearing from our associate pastor, Calvin, with a night church message. He's called Straining the Gnat, in my opinion, winning the best sermon title ever award right there. Without any further from me, here's the podcast.
1: somewhat of a, uh, I don't know, like a problem solver or a little bit obsessed with like having to know it all. I don't know if anyone else has this sort of problem, but I, I have this sort of incessant need to like break things down and understand them to the point where I often get distracted or like I kind of zone out a little bit. Um, but I'll, often I'll be thinking about something, just sometimes it'll be a random thing, like it'll just pop into my head. I'll be like, I wonder what I wonder what the people, the guys from the the boy band 98 Degrees are up to these days. Does anyone remember 98 Degrees? That's like real old school. Or like maybe it'll be like, Backstreet Boys, what are they doing? I don't just think about pop groups. Those are just two, two examples. But uh, I often just like think about these things. Find myself just drifting. What happens with this? Um, sometimes it's in regards to sports, so I'll start thinking about like particular um, particular techniques or something. Uh, sometimes it is about um, like comic books. Or I went and I went and saw Infinity War the other night. It kind of messed with my mind a little bit. If you've seen it already, you know what I'm talking about. It's crazy. But I went home and I spent like two hours just on my phone, like just Wikipediaing stuff and you know trying to wrap my head around it. I've, it feels like I have to wrap my head around everything. And uh, sometimes it feels like a bit of a problem, but it's just, it's just sort of part of, of how, I, how I function. I, I need to know what it all looks like. I need to know how it works. I need to sort of have it figured out. Does anyone resonate with that a little bit, right? Yeah, uh, probably like six or seven years ago, um, during a pretty during a pretty formational time of of my faith i think um, i was I was studying a lot and I, I kind of got a little bit obsessed with like like different parts of scripture and different stories and And I started to really wrestle with the the broader narrative of what was being told within church. And I started to like struggle with it a little bit. There were a lot of things that I felt like like didn't line up, um, didn't make sense to me, that kind of confused me, it kind of challenged me a little bit. Um, And I just started to get incredibly frustrated to the point where it was like, man, I just I feel like I'm investing all this time trying to wrap my head around this faith thing and this God thing. And it just sort of began to irk me. And I remember sitting with a with a friend one morning and we'd we sort of been doing some study and stuff together, and we were chatting and and we had this like little prayer time together. And I I just felt this, this gentle, this gentle whisper of sorts. And it was like Jesus said to me in that moment, and it's something that stuck with me, but it was like. Calvin, the story's always bigger. It's always bigger than, than what you think it is. Well, that thing that you think you've figured out, it's bigger than that. And it's like, that was the thing that was frustrating me. It's like, no matter what I did, it was like, oh no, it feels like there's something more. It feels like there could be something more. It feels like there's something different or, or whatever. But it was, like, it was almost like this peace that came over me as it was like, Calvin, the story is always bigger. The story's always bigger. And it's been amazing for me what that's sort of breathed into my life. Like I've continued to study. I love learning. I love I love the scriptures. Um, I love people who who care about the scriptures and who care enough about the scriptures to write books and to wrestle with big grand ideas and to and to present them in a way that is that is loving and gracious um, and to put them out there for people to sort of engage in dialogue with. But it's amazing. The the more I study, the more I press into it, whether it's whether it's sort of modern uh scholars or whether it's leaning into something that was written 1,500 years ago, I love that every single time I press into something and I learn something new or I learn something different or challenging, every single time the story gets a little bit bigger, right? The story always gets bigger. And for me, I think one of the interesting things about, about humans is that we, we kind of like to know what the rules are. We like to know the black and white things. We like to know what the boundaries are. How do we fit in? How do we take part? What's going to look right? What's the right way to act in the situation? We kind of like those things. And what's really interesting to me is that it's always kind of been that way. And one of the fascinating things of, of the Gospels and pressing into these stories over the last, I don't know, 12 or 13 years of my life is that when you begin to understand the, the history and the context and the culture uh, of first century Israel, you get to understand that Jesus is, is almost gently prompting every single person and every single counter. It's like, hey, this, this story's bigger. That thing that you thought you knew and you had figured out, actually the story's, the story's a little bit bigger than that. And so I think, you know, uh, part, of, uh, part of what's wonderful for us as a church is that we get to gather together this evening, we get to press into that, and we get to discover something more of the biggest story. And uh, this week, I've just, I was early, very early on in the week, I was drawn to this particular passage in the, in the Bible. Uh, it's in Matthew 23, and, and we haven't done like a good old-fashioned, like, exegesis in a long time, right? Does that word scare anyone? It's not scary. It's real easy. So, uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, or if you've got some sort of digital, I don't know, tablet or phone or whatever, why don't you open to Matthew 23? Um, this is the kind of thing. Or if you've got a notebook, if you still like to sort of engage pen and paper type thing, this might be the, a good kind of sermon to do that with. Because I want to I want to take you into a story where Jesus is challenging the narrative that's happening around him, the things that are being held dear by other people. It's a really great example of this. I just wanna give you um, just a little bit of context as to what is happening here. Within first century Israel, if if you aren't aware, um, the Jewish people are basically under oppression by the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire has been spreading through uh, what we know as Europe and the Middle East, uh, and it's occupied Israel and they're sort of in charge. And there's a whole bunch of people, a big part of the Jewish culture is trying to figure out how do we get out of this oppression? How do we move from essentially another form of slavery towards freedom? Because we know that we are God's, Chosen people, we know that there is the story for us, and we need to move towards freedom. But what does that look like? And it's almost like within that culture, within that context, there are these different stories that are beginning to emerge about how best to do that. Right? It's almost like there are different polit- like political parties or different um, sort of social movements. That are beginning to rise up. You know, we see these things, right? All these different political parties and social movements. You think about um, some of the things that we've seen even just over the last couple of years, uh, over the last couple of years. Think about even in the last 12 months, things like Black Lives Matter uh, or the Me Too movement, all these things that sort of pop up. It hasn't social media been a really interesting, uh, I don't know, conductor of those sorts of social movements? but there are these narratives that begin to arise that begin to address pressure points within society. And so there are particular pressure points that are being addressed within the Jewish context and there is a wrestling and, a, and, and sort of a reconciling, trying to figure out what does it look like for us to move towards freedom. And so there are these different, different little movements that pop up. So you have a group of people and they're called the Zealots and they they kind of think, well, we've actually got to take this thing back. So they're sort of planning like little military things. They're like it's sort of guerrilla warfare, um, which is like not super great. It's, it's not really working out for them. Um, you have uh, the Sadducees who sort of think it's kind of good to sidle up alongside of uh, the wealthy Romans. Um, and so they're just trying to like build relationship and they're like, well, this is all good. So you guys can come in and you can be a part of our story if we get to kind of be a part of this as well. Um, and then you have this group of people called the Pharisees. And what's interesting, if you spend enough time in the Gospels, you, it seems like Jesus continues to have problems with the Pharisees over and over and over again. Now, the Pharisees had a, basically had a particular idea in mind. They, they adhered to the, the idea that, that there was no, there was no such like grander story for, for non-Jewish people. So they were, they were kind of into the pure idea, like pure Jewish people. Um, and they had this idea that if we were going to be liberated, uh, we have to basically tighten the belts. You know, we have to look at what we're doing. We have to, we have to um, live in a more holy way. We have to pray louder. We have to do all this sort of stuff. And it actually became a really popular movement. It's like, well, if God's not freeing us now, then we're obviously not, we're not doing like the holy stuff right. We're not doing it good enough. So we better do it harder. We better do it faster. We better do it better. And this became like a popular thing. It was actually getting like a whole lot of movement behind it. As these sort of different social movements tend to do, whether they're, whether they're good or bad, they tend to get a sort of upsweep, a groundswell behind them moving towards this thing. And so Jesus, it seems really important to Jesus to challenge this narrative that's developing, that's become really dominant during his time. It's quite obvious when you study the teachings of Jesus that that this is an unhealthy way of viewing faith or viewing relationship with God or even as viewing our own humanity and our place within society and culture. And so I think that there's something for us in this chapter this evening. So moving through Matthew chapter 23, we'll basically dip in and out. And I just want to take you through a little bit of what's happening here, because this is one of Jesus's few moments where he gets like incredibly impassioned about what's going on. And I, whenever I see Jesus, it always seems like he's, he's pretty calm and he's pretty loving and he's pretty gracious. And, you know, you kind of get this in your mind. I don't know about you, but I kind of get this like quite gentle this gentle, loving picture of Jesus. And there's only a couple of times in scripture where I feel like I see a really different version. One is when he walks into the temple and he's like flipping tables. And the other one is this time where he's just basically laying out these Pharisees and these scribes. And so I want to work through it and, and actually ask the question, what what's in this chapter for us? as a community that exists some 2,000 years later as people looking to be earnest followers of Christ. How does the story get bigger when we look at something like Matthew 23? (coughs) Um, This is how it starts. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra long tassels, and they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honour in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in marketplaces and to be called rabbi. <clears throat> so here's Jesus and he's basically saying, hey, look, these guys, they actually know what they're talking about when they talk about the Mosaic law. So when they talk about Moses and when they talk about Torah, um, they know what they're up to. They're talking, they're talking about some good stuff, but don't model your life after what you see in them because they're swept up in the the grandeur of it. They love to sit in the places of honour. What Jesus is basically pointing out here is that, hey, there's no humility in the manner in which they conduct themselves. They like to be seen praying. They like to be seen teaching. They like to hear people call them teacher. To call someone rabbi was to use the words, my Lord. And we'll see that pop up a little bit again uh, later on in the chapter. But Jesus is saying like, Honestly, these guys love that sort of stuff. You know, they've done some archaeology on like old synagogue sites and, and they've found like when it talks about um, the seat in the synagogue, it's actually like a literal seat that, that, that teachers would sit in. So almost like it was like this single seat that would sit there and people would gather around, sit on the floor and listen to the person in the seat. So Jesus is saying they love that, but it lacks, that attitude lacks humility. So there's this frustration that's beginning, that, that Jesus is beginning to see in the Pharisees uh, and the scribes around Him. Um, and so after, after sort of addressing this, Jesus goes on to start challenging, um, challenging the way that these guys perceive the law and teach the law and talk about the law and the way they live their lives. And um, as He does that, Uh, he begins to expose these things called the woes, the seven woes. We talk about the seven woes of Jesus when we talk about this passage. And effectively what these seven woes are is they're seven areas of contention. They're they're areas that Jesus wishes to expose and address and effectively invite a different way of thinking about things. And so I want to move through them before we just come to some final key points for us. So, when he's addressing these people who are failing to teach and lead in humility, these are some of the things that he talks about as being woeful. The first woe is the shut door. Uh, 23, verse 13 says this What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves and you don't let others enter either. Basically, he's talking about the way that they're teaching. They're they're talking about God. They're talking about all these things, but it's almost like in the way that they're doing it, they're denying people the opportunity to really experience God. It's like, man, you guys get so caught up in the grandeur of things, of trying to look right and do things right, that you don't even even get to enter into just the, the peaceful presence of knowing God. And you are denying the people around you the opportunity to do that as well. So this is the first thing that frustrates Jesus, that irks him. It's like, woe to you. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law? <clears throat> the second one, the second, the second woe is the, uh, the woe of the entrapped Converts. Uh, Verse 15 says this uh, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious laws, and you Pharisees, you hypocrites? For you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. That's a pretty heavy thing to say, right? (coughs) It's like what he's effectively saying is you turn that other person into trash. You make all this big deal out of this thing, but actually, because of your um, because of your beliefs in sort of the Puritan kind of way of thinking that that this person is actually not, they're not all the way a real Jew. They're not all the way really entitled to the things of God's kingdom. They're not all the way there. And so actually, if you're there, this is what a Pharisee would say. If, if, if you're coming in and you're believing in this God and you're stepping into this story, whew, you better do everything that I do and twice as hard and twice as good. That's effectively what, what Jesus is addressing. Like the, the, the uh, pressure that these guys were putting on n- new believers or people who were returning to faith in some way was unprecedented. This is the way you've got to live your life. So Jesus like, challenges that and condemns it. It's like, how could you put that on these people? Um, <clears throat> third one, the woe of the binding oaths. This is carrying on from verse 16. Blind guides, what sorrow awaits you? For you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that is bind, but that it is binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Blind fools, which is more important? The gold of the temple that, uh, that makes the gold sacred. And you say that to swear by the sight uh, by the altar is not binding, but to swear by the gifts of the altar is binding. How blind, for which is more important, the gift on the altar or the altar that makes the gift sacred? When you swear by the altar, you're swearing by it and everything on it. And when you swear by the temple, you're swearing by it and by God who lives in it. And when you swear by heaven, you're swearing by the throne of God and by God who sits on the throne. A little bit wordy, I know. But basically they're trying to make all of these rules around the sacrifices. So there are these systems that Jewish people are invited to participate in. And part of that is to bring sacrifices to the altar as, you know, normally part of Passover or or something like that. And And that was their means of redemption. People would come to the temple, participate in these sacrifices. And this was their way of reconciling with and getting redemption before God. And this was part of their rhythm and part of their culture. And these guys would challenge that and say, actually, you know, what you're doing is not good enough. No, you need to you need to buy more things or you need to you need to sacrifice more things or different things. They would challenge what people are doing. And Jesus is saying, like, how can you say that? How can you say what is a binding oath, what is good and what is not good? How can you challenge that when people bring something earnest before the altar, before God? How can you challenge that? So it frustrates him that that they're putting all of these different rules around the system, that they're adding to the system that God has set up and established that has been part of the covenant of God's people. This is a frustration to Jesus. The neglecting of the whole law is the fourth woe. What sorrow awaits you, woe to you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you see this? Like this rhythm, right, that comes through. What sorrow awaits you? You Pharisees, you hypocrites, right? He's almost making like hip, the word hypocritical and Pharisee synonymous with each other, right? So like this is what it keeps coming back to. Hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides. You strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. I don't know if you're reading the similar version, but you'll see there are all these things that come through time and again, right? Hypocrite, blind guides. You're you're leading people into something and towards something that you don't know. This is unhealthy, this is unhelpful. And what he's talking about here is, is that you guys get so caught up in, in all of your little ceremonial laws that you keep missing the big picture. There's something about that straining the gnat and swallowing a camel that is like stuck out to me and I'm gonna come back to it again just a little bit later. But it's, it's, it's absolutely critical for Jesus to point out here, hey, do you know what? You're missing the big picture. How can you get so into all of these little things? How can you be about all these little things, getting all nitpicky and yet, and yet neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness? How can you do that? How can this be a good thing and a godly thing if you fail to do that? The fifth woe of Jesus is the, is the idea of being clean on the inside. Sorry, clean on the outside. Oh, clean on the outside, filthy on the inside. Twenty uh, verse, carrying on from verse twenty-five. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you're so careful to clean the outside of the cup in the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! First wash the inside of the cup in the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. <coughs> this is like a really common scripture that we hear about all the time. But this idea of being so concerned with with our outward appearance and yet failing to tend to the matters of the heart. Right? I just want to fire through these so we can get to the main points. The next thing almost comes in straight off the back. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. So the same premise as the cup, and we often talk use the cup scripture as an example, but the same thing. This is this is something that, that breaks Jesus' heart. That that they're so concerned with the outward appearance, but actually there's he points towards death and decay happening inside of you. There's no, there's no life happening on the inside of you when you're just totally concerned with this outwards thing. And finally, um, the woe uh, of the descendants of murderers of the prophets, which is a bit wordy. But basically from 29 through to verses 39, so um, it's a big chunk, so we won't go through it. But Jesus points to the way that the Pharisees are similar to those who murdered the prophets from the Old Testament. And so what we see through the Old Testament is these prophets who come declaring truth, who carry the story, um, who uh, invite Israel towards uh, a better reality. And they challenge this, what's sort of going on in the, in the cultural environment and in the context. And they say, hey, this thing is happening. You're shifting away from God. Repent of those things. Move back towards God. Um, you know, Come towards Him. Offer your heart to Him. There's all of these stories. And then what happens is that often these prophets are chased down and they're murdered. And who are they chased down by? Those who think they have it all figured out. Jesus is saying here, do you not recognize that you are just like those who murdered the prophets? In fact, he even says here, you, know, you say that if you, were, if you were in that time, that you would never do it. That you would save your prophets, but don't you see that the way you're living and the things you're advocating for and the things that you're about and what you're inviting people towards, is to actually participate and advocate for the destruction of those who speak truth? This is a challenge of Jesus saying, even the Pharisees who are advocating for the execution of Jesus. Jesus is pointing out, do you not see that you're just subjecting and adver- uh, subjecting to the same mentality? advocating for the same thing, death and destruction on those who carry the truth of God. So there are these very intense challenges that Jesus issues, these very intense thoughts. And for us to be able to come to a text like this, it's actually very easy for us to almost sit on the side of Jesus and just like nod our heads and say, yeah, absolutely, And it's almost easy to not look for the invitation that's in it for us. But I think that there's some really beautiful things we can take from this, from these these things that essentially break the heart of Jesus. What is there uh, for us in this this evening? Well, my first thought is this, um, is that it's really important for us to not miss the big picture you know, going back to uh, where he talks about straining the gnat and swallowing the camel, Jesus is uh, deliberately referencing two scriptures from Leviticus 11.4, which says, No insect that, insect that touches the ground should you eat. And so what they would do is they would basically strain all of these uh, sort of leaders they, or religious people. They would, they would strain their wine through sieves um, and to make sure that even the tiniest little insect wouldn't get into their drink because it would be ceremonially unclean. And they were all about keeping the rules. But also in Leviticus 11.23, so later on in the same chapter, it deliberately states, do not eat camels. So there's this thing where Jesus is saying, hey, I recognize that you're doing the good thing with the little thing. But he's not saying you're, you're literally eating camels. He's like, basically, like the, by failing to buy into the bigger story, it's like, you're just eating the bigger thing. You're missing the point. There's no point in just straining the gnat when you're still eating the camel. So what does Jesus invite us back towards time and time and time again in this thing? You ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. We can't afford to ignore those things. Right? What else does the Lord require of us? but to love justice and to live mercifully and to live faithful lives in partnership and in relationship with God. So we can't afford to miss the big picture. This is the big challenge here. It's like, don't get so caught up in the little things. How many times have there been arguments about what is right? What's the right Christian thing to believe? I sat with someone earlier this week and I just rolled out this Christian timeline and we just basically work through everything and you get to like the year fi- uh, 1500 and basically just for like the last 500 years, the church has just split off into who knows how many different denominations, like thousands and thousands of like tiny little denominations or every single time, every single little break, a representation of a time of someone going, hey guys, you're all doing it wrong, I'm doing it right. That's what every single one of those little, little tree, li- tree breaks means. Until it eventually ended up at the vineyard and we, we sorted it. <laughs> right? <clears throat> but that's what all of these things represent. All because people, people just get a little bit messed up and by something, "Oh no, we're going to go do it this way. We actually think it's about this, and this, and this, and this and this. Jesus says, "Do not miss the big thing. Do not miss the more important aspects: justice, mercy and faith. Second big thing that comes out of Matthew 23 is this idea of not neglecting the heart. You know, we often use that cup analogy, like I said before, but the tombstone one's really interesting. Here's why. One of the reasons why in first century Israel, they painted all the tombstones white was to clearly mark where death was. So Jesus is making a really interesting statement here because what he's saying is he goes, hey guys, by just cleaning the outside of the cup, by just trying to make it look like you have it all together, everyone knows that you probably still don't. So what happens is the right thing to do in first century Israel is if there's any sort of death near you, you cross to the other side of the road and you walk away from it. So when Jesus is pointing out that these tombs are whitewashed, what he's saying is he's going, hey, your actions are actually driving people further away. It's not bringing them towards life. It's driving them further away. It's not bringing them towards God. It's driving them further away. Why? Because there's a failure to acknowledge like what's real. By trying to make the outside shiny and not acknowledging the real, like what's really going on, it's like you're pushing people away. You can't afford to neglect the heart. There has to be an authenticity to how we live out our lives. Uh, Proverbs 4.23 says this, keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flows the springs of life. So be diligent, be vigilant, be intentional about looking after your heart, about considering what it is you pour into your heart, about considering what flows out of your heart, by considering, I don't know, the words you hear or the the stories you believe about yourself or what you believe about God or purpose or meaning or any of that sort of thing, but what's informing your heart. And are you looking after your heart more than you're just trying to like make the outside look like you've got it all together? Because I think that there's an invitation towards authenticity here. So you've got to look after your heart with vigilance and intentionality diligence because from it flows the springs of life. And then the final thing is this. I think part of Matthew 23 that we can take for ourselves is that it's super important to never forget the past. I love the sermon that Vic shared last week on Anzac Day about remembering the freedom that we walk in because of the sacrifice that's gone before us. And there's this old saying, you know, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. This is what Jesus is saying. He's like, man, you get so caught up in your own stuff. You get so caught up in this thing that you're trying to do and you fail to recognise that you're falling into the same traps and the same patterns that resulted in the deaths of those who were carrying the story of truth and love and reconciliation. And what was crazy about it was that he was right because who advocated for his death on the cross? The Pharisees. Who was all about Jesus dying? The Pharisees. It's like, that's not... It's not the story of the loving, redemptive God. They began to miss the point. Their lack of humility, their sense of like, we've got this right and you've got this wrong and we need to destroy everything that's wrong. It ultimately led down to the path of their own destruction. A lack of humility often leads to the destruction of the good and godly thing. So this is the lesson we got to take from the Pharisees. And so this is where we sit with something like this, something like Matthew 23, a, a strange chapter that probably sometimes we just gloss over because it's just Jesus telling Pharisees off. But there's something for us in it this evening. There's an invitation to, to step into the big picture again, to see, the, to see the story as being bigger than what it was before. There's an invitation to open our heart again, to invite God into our heart, to look after and nurture the things that are going into our heart. And there's an invitation to remember the past and to learn from it and to carry it. And that's why I think tonight, even when we work with a scripture which is about Pharisees and it's the kind of scripture that we wouldn't normally go through or something like that, I think it's incredible that the things we can take from it can lead us towards the communion table. Now here's what we do every month we we once at the end of every month we finish with communion. Communion is this wonderful thing. We took communion all through Easter. We 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 really stepped into that story and we looked at what communion did. And I want to say that communion is again this thing. For me it's just one of those like important rituals. It's this lovely ritual and tonight we get to to do this thing together again. Here's what I want to say about communion. We come to this table together as a family. And tonight, this is the table where we can connect with the story and what it is that Jesus invites us to. When we take communion in this moment, tonight, we can connect with the big picture. I want to say that the table tonight is where our hearts are softened and opened to love, mercy, justice and faithfulness and I want to say that the table tonight is where we remember Jesus where we acknowledge in this moment what human evil evil is capable of doing and what it can do and what and we remember what God's love can overcome and redeem in our lives that's the table that we're invited to this evening
0: You enjoyed this message from shore vineyard church in fact i'd love to hear from you throughout this week wherever you're from you can reach out through facebook instagram or by email dg svc.org.nz the message you just heard was from one of our sunday services and i'd love to invite you to join us this weekend at 10am or 6pm at 252 forest hill road in forest hill on auckland's north shore You can find out more about our church right now if you want at svc.org.nz. Have a great week and we'll see you next time on the podcast.